I want you to be praying as I'm sharing this with you because I realize that as we go through the Bible, when we talk about expository preaching, uh, it's, it's a very tough thing. You don't get to skip verses. You, know, you don't get to choose what exactly you want to say. And it forces you to really consider the context as it presents itself. And so this is one of those teachings, and I had good time learning, but also at the same time, I struggled with how best to present it. So as we get into this evening's teaching, you know, keep praying, all right? Keep praying uh, for me so that the Lord will use this time to teach uh, all of us. Tell you what, let's, let's pray, let's pray. I was going to pray later, but I think we should start by praying first. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your words, and we want to hear you speak to us by your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, as, as you would speak to your people, I pray for our ears to hear. I pray for our eyes to see, and you show us, Lord, what we should be understanding. We pray for our hearts, Lord, to be good soil, so that it will not be stolen by the enemy. It will not be distracted by anything else. We will not be shallow people but we will yield a harvest that will be 30, 60, and even some 100 fold. And so be with me, Lord, as we go into this passage, and be with my brothers and sisters both here and listening in. We bless you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Super Sub. What an odd title, I believe you are wondering. And no, I'm not referring to a super submarine sandwich. And no, I'm not referring to a superior underwater vehicle. So it's not one of those nuclear submarines that we're talking about. But if you are a football or soccer fan, you will understand this term rather well. This term, super sub, actually came up sometime in the 1960s, I believe. That instead of just pushing in a substitute because someone is injured or someone is tired, it became part of a strategy of the entire game. That at the right time, the coach or the manager would throw in a substitute to change the way the game is going. And after years, we see that that has become the strategy, and many teams now actually employ this. And this is what the term means. A super sub, a super substitute that makes a difference that changes the game. Now, what does this have to do with today's teaching? Well, stay with me, and uh, I hope it will become clear to us you know, as we go through the teaching this evening. Let's read the passage. We're in Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 to 17. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and served them. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And he cast out the spirits with a word, and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. There are two parallel passages to the one that we've just read in Matthew. You want to take note, it is Mark chapter 1, 29 to 31, as well as Luke chapter 4, 38 and 39. Now, you know that we are in a series of uh, three miracles 
Matthew records this in chapter 8, chapter 9. Jesus demonstrates the authority, the power of the kingdom. He was also using these miracles as object lessons to train and to lead his disciples. We are in the first section, Matthew chapter 8, 2 to 17. We have gone through two miracles. If you want to review them, you can get onto our teachings in the SoundCloud, and they are entitled, Make Me Clean. And the next one would be the day Messiah marveled. These are the two miracles that we have already uh, taught in the last two sessions. Tonight, we look at a third miracle in the first group of these miracles. And we see a few things as we have already noticed. Number one, Jesus breaks barriers. He transcends barriers. The leper was a ceremonial outcast, but it didn't matter to Jesus, right? He was able to just go to the leper. The leper approached him and Jesus touched him and he was healed. The centurion was a racial outcast. Ethnically, he was considered unclean. He was a Gentile. And yet Jesus considered his requests. And we learned quite a lot of that about that in the last teaching. Today we see that Jesus heals and restores a woman. Now, another outcast in that sense because she would be socially considered someone who is like a second-class citizen. In the culture of those days, the, the women were not regarded well or as equal. So Jesus breaks all these barriers. In these three miracles that we see, these three stories, the first point is we understand Jesus was not concerned about all these barriers. He's here to restore everything and everyone. Secondly, Jesus challenges cultural norms. He touches one who is unclean. Now, that's not allowed in the law because the moment you touch someone who is unclean, you will become unclean yourself. But Jesus wasn't concerned about that at all. So he breaks a cultural norm. Uh, he praises a Gentile for his great faith. If you were a Jew in those days, if you listened to that kind of a teaching or to, to hear that happening, that would have been bizarre. Right? So he breaks a cultural norm also. He touches a woman. Not only he touches a woman, he shouldn't be touching with someone who has a fever, which we'll consider later. And so Jesus touches a woman. You're not allowed in the Jewish tradition. That would be a no-no. Again, it didn't bother Jesus at all. The third thing we see is Jesus has authority over different types of sickness. For the leper, it was a skin disease. For the centurion's servant, it was uh, paralysis. For Peter's mother-in-law, it was not just fever, it was high fever. And so whether it was this sickness or that sickness, I think Matthew was really saying it doesn't matter. Jesus has authority over all sickness. Now, in this account, we notice something else. Number four, Jesus is not limited by a formal ministry setting. Now you notice, in the daytime, he was out there and he was conducting like a healing ministry, if you want to use that in today's terms. Eh? And people would be brought to him or you know, people come along the way and he touches them and, and he heals them. He comes into Peter's house and possibly he might be retiring for the day. That means, in other words, he's finished his ministry setting. That's the formal work that he's doing. He comes into the house, normal course of life, discovers... Peter's mother-in-law is sick, not well. And so he doesn't need to have this, uh, okay, these are my working hours, I only heal during this time. After that, please don't talk to me. 
It was a normal course of life. He was not limited by a formal ministry setting, which is a lesson for us. We can minister to anyone at any time. We don't have to bring them only to church, and that's the only time that we do ministry. At the same time, it's not explicit in the text, but Jesus worked on the Sabbath. Now, how do we know this? Because it says that they just came out of the synagogue. Now, they would attend the synagogue because of the Sabbath. And after that, they came up, and he went home, and the text records for us that people were brought to Jesus in the evening. I mean, why wait until the evening? Was it because they had a 9-to-5 job and that's why they are not able to bring Jesus? No, it's because it was the Sabbath and they had to wait for after the Sabbath before anything could be done. And Matthew doesn't make a big deal of it because later on in another passage, he will address this issue about Sabbath. And possibly because of all these things happening, Publicity started to go around. Reports reached the ears of the Pharisees. And that's why they took issue with this. So if you look at these three miracles, you will find that these things, Jesus challenges, he, he breaks norms, and he would just do it. And he was demonstrating what the kingdom was all about as against a traditional understanding or a very legalistic understanding of the law. Now, Matthew, in recording the three miracles, suddenly he goes to verse 16. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed. And not just the demon-possessed, he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. And I think if you look at Matthew, possibly he might be just pulling back the lens, you know, from a very close focus of Miracle number one, number two, number three. He pulls back the lens and it's from three to all. It's like a summary to tell you that it's not just three, okay? It's not just five. It's not just ten. It's, it's so many people. Not just the people who are sick, but as well as the people who are demon-possessed. And so it gives us a hint, just a hint, of Matthew's intention through this summary statement that he is showing us that these miracles are just the signs. They are not the main thing. The miracles are signs. And how do we know that this is Matthew's intent? Because as he records this phrase, you notice he says that he cast out the spirits with the word, he healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled. That it might be fulfilled. There is a purpose statement. Now, many times we would read this whole thing and we say, oh, you see, Jesus heals, you know, and Jesus does all these things. And we would conveniently forget a purpose statement. But if you look at the context, then you understand Matthew is really showing the people the miracles have a purpose, that something would be fulfilled. And as impressive as these miracles were, they were not the main show. They, they were like the little trailers that sort of pointed to the main thing, that something would be fulfilled. So the first point, if you're not taking notes, the first point is to understand, miracles are signs. They are not the main things. Now, many times we can make a mistake and make it the main thing. Now, they're very impressive. They're very big deal things. Now, it's also consistent with what we've been teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus is saying the miracles are the wow things, the, the wonders, the signs, the, the beautiful, very impressive. But it's not the signs that matter in the end. The signs point to something. The miracles are 
signs. That's point number one for us. Now, what is it pointing to? Let's read on in Matthew chapter 8, verse 17. All these things happened. Jesus cast out spirits, healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, He himself took our infirmities and bore our sickness. Now, before we address this one statement, let's look at an understanding of the Old Testament scriptures and how it relates to Matthew. In the book of Matthew, there are more than 60 references to Old Testament scriptures. And this is very important because Matthew was writing to the Jews. And all the Jews had were all the Old Testament scriptures. And he's saying, if I quote all this for you, Old Testament has already, the Hebrew scriptures, they've already testified of the Messiah that will be coming. Now you're all wondering, who is this Messiah? And so I'm drawing from Old Testament. I'm drawing from the scriptures that you're familiar with. And I'm going to show you that this person, his name is Jesus. This is the Messiah that all the scriptures uh, have been talking about. And specifically, in Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, he quotes from Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 4. He pulls out from this one section from Isaiah. If you study the book of Isaiah, you will find that there are four parts inside there which they call the servant songs that testify and point and prophesy towards a Messiah that will come. This, this whole text will describe the person and the character of this servant, the servant of the Lord. This Messiah will come, He will serve the Lord, He will fulfill the purposes of the kingdom, and this one will be the king that you're looking for. Now, let me read for you in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 to 6. And I think we are familiar. I don't have it on the slide for you, but just listen to the words. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Very familiar passage. We read it often at the communion services, right? When we are, whenever we talk about Jesus dying upon the cross, we sang about it just now. We would quote this verse that this is the one. He has taken our griefs, He has carried our sorrows. And to the Jews, when they, when they see this person suffering in this way, they will look at Him and say, it's all your fault. You know, God is judging you for all these kind of things. But not realizing it, that He would have done this voluntarily. Specifically for our understanding, I've just highlighted these things for you. If you will notice the way Isaiah phrases, note the He and the Our. The one person versus the group description. He has borne our griefs. This is the nature of his assignment. He doesn't just describe the person and the character of the Messiah. He also describes the nature of his assignment. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was chastised on our behalf for our peace, by His stripes for our healing. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. 
So when you look at this whole passage, this is where theologians come with this understanding. We call it the doctrine of substitution. He is our substitute. The Messiah doesn't just come to, to save you and leave you to figure out what to do with all these things. He comes and He stands in the place of His people. Messiah comes as Israel's substitute. Now let's be clear to Scripture first. Right? Isaiah was talking about the people of Israel. Messiah was to be Israel's substitute so that they in turn may have a restoration, the peace, the shalom that we talk about. Now again, this is consistent. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, when Jesus was to be born, the angel says, His name shall be Jesus, because He will be the one who will save His people from their sins. He will save them from their sins. So it's very, very consistent. Matthew is just piecing all the little jigsaw pieces together to show a big picture to say, this is Jesus, this is the Messiah. But is it only just for Israel? No, you will find that in part of the other servant songs, we find in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6, the Lord says, indeed, He says, it is too small. I mean, just to save Israel, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so this is a big revelation. Now, I think if you are a person of Israel, listening to this, you don't really understand how this is going to be played out. Isaiah says, it's not just for us, Israel. It's too small. We are just an example. God's kingdom plan is to save the entire world. The entire world. My salvation is to the ends of the earth. Now again, this is consistent with the Gospels. Remember John? John the Baptist, as recorded in the Gospel of John, when he sees Jesus, he declares, Behold, the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And I just did a quick check on that study of the word. We read in English, takes away the sins of the world. Now, technically, to be accurate, it actually means the Lamb of God who takes upon Himself the sins of the world. The Lamb of God who carries, who bears on Himself the sins of this world. Once again, consistent with exactly what Isaiah is saying. Jesus will come and suffer on behalf of His people Israel. That's too small. Jesus will come and suffer on behalf, vicariously. We have that word, right? Vicariously. So in certain denominations, the priests are called the vicars. That's what the priests do. They they represent you. And so Jesus suffered vicariously, not just for Israel, but for us Gentiles too. Praise the Lord. Not just for His own people, but for all to the ends of the world. Messiah as the substitute. And, you know, as when we look at this, 
I was like, how do I title this? He is the substitute. He is the super substitute. Pardon me, allow me this football analogy. I'm not trying to trivialize the work of God. Okay, it's like God watching as a master coach, the, the master manager of the entire game. And he looks down and when all seems to be like no more hope, right? Humanity seems to be like killing themselves and so on. He says, okay, hang on there. Hang, I, I, I've got this under control, right? I've got the strategy. I'm just waiting for the right time. The right time. Second half is gone. We're worried now. 30 minutes have gone by. We're really worried now. You know, <laughs> Israel is saying, what's happening? And God is saying, okay, this is the time. Super sub, get in. Jesus comes in, plays that substitute, and he is that, what's the term today? He's the game changer. He changes everything. He secures a mighty victory for this team. And I say, wow, man, Lord, you know, I, I hope that people don't throw stones at me for calling Jesus a football substitute. It's just a picture. Will you allow me to do that? Yeah? But can you see that? At the right time, the fullness of time, not before, not later, Jesus was sent in as that super sub. And what I want you to see is that miracles point to the fulfillment of this Messiah. That's what the miracles are for. The signs are pointing to Jesus as the Messiah. The signs are, are not the main thing. The miracles are good, are impressive, are needed, but they are not the main thing. Let's look at two important observations now that we understand this. Two important observations that will help us better understand Jesus' ministry of healing. Now, you'll agree with me, this healing ministry, even in today's context, is still very controversial. We still have so many questions that either... They are not answered or they are answered, but we don't accept the answers and you know, we're still trying to press in for something. I hope these two observations will help clarify something. And like I said in the beginning, this is not an easy passage to teach because for certain groups that believe in certain aspects of healing or how Jesus heals, this is the pivotal verse. So I want to be very careful as we handle this one. The first thing to notice, the first observation if you read the text, and if you read it too quickly, you'll miss it. Matthew declared that Isaiah 53 verse 4 was fulfilled when? When Jesus was alive, not after his death. Read the text carefully, right? Just journey with me. He says miracle 1, miracle 2, miracle 3, miracle don't know how many, a lot. And all of these happen that Isaiah 53 verse 4 would be fulfilled. Now, had Jesus died then? Not yet. He was still alive. Right? Now, you may say, oh, Matthew is recording it post-death. You know? and, and no, you, you, can't, you cannot explain it that way. He's trying to tell the people, these things have happened and that already proves something. The prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus was alive and not after His death. I believe the way to understand it is that the prophecy was fulfilled as evidenced by the healing miracles, not Jesus' death on the cross. Stay with me. Some of you are frowning already. Why? Because Jesus' healing was only one aspect of His kingdom assignment. And it points to Him as the Messiah. But it's not the only aspect. It's not the biggest thing. Remember, miracles are signs that point to the main idea. So Matthew is saying that the miracles affirm Jesus as the Messiah. 
When the Messiah comes, when He walks on earth, this is what's going to happen. And you will see it, but you will not agree. You will see it, but you will not receive it. You will see it, but you will reject it. But it's very clear. He didn't have to die yet to be your Messiah. He is already the Messiah. The healing ministry of Jesus was only one aspect. As Messiah, Jesus will go on to fulfill a greater healing. How? Through the salvation from sins. Salvation from sin, and we can call it a spiritual healing. That is way more important than a physical healing. The spiritual healing is the big picture, is the main item. The physical healing would point to that. Would you agree? Those who are healed still died. Those who are healed today will still die. But those who are saved will never die. You see, so it points to a much bigger picture. Now, I'm not saying healing is not important. I'm not saying healing is not good for us and we shouldn't seek it. That's not my point, please. I'm going to Scripture. I'm unpacking it because I want us to to allow Scripture to say what, what Scripture wants to say. And it should mean what it should mean. Okay? So the prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus was alive and not after His death. The miracles point to His Messiahship and He didn't have to die first. He was already Messiah. That would be something that testifies His Messiah at His death. Jesus will fulfill a greater, greater healing through salvation. That's the first observation. The second observation is this, that Matthew quotes Isaiah 53 and verse 4. There's another quotation, the next verse, Isaiah 53 verse 5, and it's quoted by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25. So in Matthew, he translates it directly from the Hebrew. And it sounds like this. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. So we read this as physical healing. Peter, when he refers to Isaiah 53 verse 5 as a conclusion to the whole passage, he says, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes you are healed. So he uses the word healed but he refers to sins. So we have these two words, sickness and sin. And that's a question that we'll always be asking. So is it, did Jesus die for our sickness or did he die for our sin? And the answer is yes. He died for both our sickness as well as our sin. Because his Messiahship and his sacrifice on the cross, the substitution is enough to cover everything. But if you understand the context again, what we believe, and I agree with many of the commentators as I've done my research, this passage does not refer to physical healing as the main thing. It refers to spiritual healing as the main thing. Once again, friends, point number one, miracles are signs. Miracles are signs. So don't, don't love the signs so much that we camp at the signs that we forget what is the main thing. So these two observations are important for us to understand and to better, perhaps, process questions about healing. With that, let me try my best to answer four what I call FAQs about healing. Many people ask these questions. We may have addressed that in other teachings, but I think it's good for us to review it because this is the passage that we are dealing with 
at this point. So number one, first question, is sickness always a result of sin? Is sickness always a result of sin? And it's very interesting. I'm seeing people either nodding their head or shaking their head, you know. And it's good. You have your point of view. But I think we can all agree that sin and sickness are related. There's definitely a relationship between sickness and sin. Although not all sickness is attributed to personal sin, all sickness is a consequence of original sin. Do you want me to read that once more? Okay, let me say it again for you. Although not all sickness is attributed to personal sin, all sickness is a consequence of original sin. Okay, so sin and sickness are related. Blanket statement, you can pin sickness, disease, anything and everything to sin. But you cannot, and we should not, immediately presume just because someone is sick, it is a result of this person's personal sin. That would be irresponsible. And if you go through the healing accounts of Jesus, for the man that was born blind, the disciples asked, did this guy sin or the parents sin? And Jesus said, no, none of the above. Right? So we understand it's not attributed to personal sin all the time, but definitely sickness is a consequence of original sin. So first question for you to know. Now, some people will then ask, then, so how, you know, when I'm sick, you know, do I have to confess everything? Can I just say, it's good practice anyway to check if you are walking right with the Lord. Would that be good? Yeah? So there's no harm to say, Lord, have I feared? Lord, have I, have I sinned? Have I, you know, dishonored you? Have I committed something, you know? Uh, have I opened certain doors? I mean, that's fine. But don't go on a witch hunt. Yeah, don't, don't keep beating yourself down until, you know, you, you no sin, also you must create some sin. Or you have to, oh, maybe it's this, or maybe it's that. You know, oh, I didn't give way to the other car this morning, so I think I sinned. I mean, don't have to look for that kind of sin. That's not the right way to approach this question about sickness and sin. Just understand that because of original sin, we are in this state. But because we are saved... That's a much bigger picture, which we'll come to in a very, very short while. Okay? So, first question, is sickness always a result of sin? Uh, yes and no, depending on what kind of sin are you talking about. The second question, must faith always be present for healing to take place? Well, the answer is no. If you look specifically at the passage that we are looking at, was it recorded that Peter's mother-in-law had faith? I mean... She might have been just too sick to even realize Jesus walked into the room. High fever. And if you have high fever, sometimes you are groggy and you are either hallucinating or you're just knocked out. Okay? Or you could say, oh, it's Peter's faith. I mean, we can keep putting someone's faith. But the point is, it is not about the faith of a person all the time. There are certain accounts where Jesus healed because of a person's faith. There are other accounts where this person didn't even know Jesus or didn't know that Jesus was there, and Jesus just healed. So is faith always a necessary ingredient? Um, I would say no. All right. So don't feel condemned if you are not healed, if you have not received anything. Sometimes people feel, I don't have enough faith. And I'm trying to ramp up more faith. I'm trying to generate more faith. That in itself, the thought is already wrong. 
right? You're already trying too hard. And then they tell you after that, don't try so hard. Then he's like, okay, so what do you want me to do? You know, I do also wrong. I don't do, I believe. You know, then, then they tell you, oh, then you believe wrongly. Ayo, you know, we're always putting the blame on this person. I think we must stop doing that. Now, we can help this person come to an understanding, right? We can come help this person understand the promise that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, we can help this person believe that God can heal. But our theology has to be more robust than just telling someone you didn't believe correctly and you slap this guy on the face. Okay, so please, please let us be more responsible. The third question is, does Jesus still heal? Does God still heal? There's no shadow of a doubt that, that Jesus still heals. But the point is this, that more important than physical healing is spiritual healing. This is what we have to understand. God still heals. When He does that, how He does that, I don't know. I can't answer you. So you have to hold the tension of faith, which is believing in the ability of God's healing powers, and submission, which is believing in the sovereignty of God's decision, whatever He wants to do, whenever He wants to do, however He wants to do it. Right? That does not diminish my faith that I have got an all-powerful God, that nothing is impossible for Him. And this is the tension, I believe, again, that I think we need to learn. And we've got to wrestle with these for even ourselves or our loved ones or our friends or even within our churches. Because related to this is the fourth question. Is healing for today, anytime when you shout a magical formula in Jesus' name, and for everyone. Is that a good question? I think we're all struggling with that question. And again, the answer is yes and no. Is healing for today? Yes. Is it anytime you command it, it must happen at your beck and call? I don't think so. Is healing for everyone? Yes. But does everyone get healed? You know the answer. I don't have to tell you. You can try and come up with any rationale and any justification and bring scripture in. But the fact is, we don't see everyone being healed. So the answer to this question is healing for today and for everyone is yes and no. Now why? Because every time you look at scriptures, and especially Isaiah, read right to the end. 53 is not even the end. The end is 66. Right? You go all the way to the end. You look at the Bible, always go to the end. Scripture is always eschatological in its overtones. It's always eschatological, which means it is not just for the here and now. It's for the here and after. Okay, that's even more critical. And so we know that if we have physical healing today, praise the Lord, but it's not as important as spiritual healing. And we know that one day, one day when the Lord comes, the breaking through of His, His kingdom is not just for now, but finally the entire culmination of the kingdom of God you know that complete and total healing will be realized at that time. Okay? Realized at that time because there will be no more tears. Revelations 21 tells us there will be no more pain, there will be no more sickness, and there will be no more death. There will be no more death. The miracles, remember, the miracles are signs. So it keeps pointing us forward. It keeps pointing us forward. And we experience it, we testify of it, but it doesn't stay there. 
it points us forward. It keeps pointing us because whoever has been healed has died. Whoever will be healed will die. Am I correct? And if it's really for the here and now, we really should be seeing graves open up all over the place because there should be no more death. Why only healing? Why not raising the dead? And we do hear accounts of those things. But you mean raising the dead is more difficult for God? If you tell me there's no classification, that's what they teach us and what they, they, they tell us, whether it's a fever or it's cancer, there's no category. Now why do we categorize death? Because death has been conquered. So can you see the inconsistency sometimes of the argument of some of these ministries that share these things with us? Now, very inspirational, very motivational. I'm not taking that away from anyone. I'm saying my faith in God has not changed. My God is still able, but my God is sovereign. And I think it takes a certain maturity even to walk that way and to allow God to do what He needs to do and what He wants to do anytime. I love the way we have been journeying through Kingdom 101 because you know we don't plan the topics. You know we don't plan the titles. I don't know when I'm going to do which passage. And I, I move on as, as the days come and the, and the scriptures just roll on, the pages just turn. Just last week, I came across this article. And this man's name is called Kosti Hin. Does it ring a bell? Does Hin sound familiar? Kosti Hin is the nephew of Benny Hin. And this article caught my eye, and I know you will catch yours, because more and more in the days that go by, I believe more and more people will be sharing this over the internet. I even had to check whether this is fake news or not. Yeah, because I don't want to be irresponsible to share something with you that is not accurate. Okay, so Kosti Hin is the nephew of Benny Hin. And because he's come out in the open to say certain things, I am now willing to say this and have it recorded to help people. In this article in Christianity Today, which came out only on the 20th of September, just last week, this title, Benihin is my uncle, but prosperity preaching isn't for me. Another name for prosperity gospel is health and wealth gospel. God wants you to be healed. God wants you to be a whole now, okay? And you can have it right now. God wants you to be rich. God wants you to be all these things. So that's a health and wealth uh, prosperity gospel. You, you can read the background. You can listen to his interviews also. But he was part of this whole ministry, the entire Word of Faith ministry. Uh, he believed everything that he was in with his uncle, with his family, with his parents, and so on. And then one day, he meets a girl. And the girl was not in our lingo Spirit field, not speaking in tongues, and <laughs> the, the way that we understand a charismatic expression. Okay, so they were trying to fix her up and uh, lay hands on her, and and she tried, but that didn't happen. And after that, he found a job as a youth pastor in this church. And let me read this article for you. And I've got a quote of him that I want you to see, but I'll read the first part so that you can understand the context of this second paragraph. While struggling to strike out into ministry, I received a call from a pastor friend who was planting a church in California, offering me a part-time youth pastor position. It seemed like a perfect place to learn and grow, so Christine, his wife, and I packed up and took a step of faith as newlyweds. Soon after joining the staff, God put the final crack in my false belief system, and the truth came bursting forth like a wave of grace. 
One of my first preaching assignments was John chapter 5, verses 1 to 17, the healing at Bethesda. Are you familiar with this one? Right? Uh, Jesus goes there and then an angel is always be like stirring the pool. Everyone is sick all over the place, but Jesus approached this one guy. Okay, let's carry on. As I studied for the sermon, my pastor friend gave me a trusted commentary. Then the Holy Spirit took over. The passage showed that Jesus healed one man out of a multitude. The man didn't know who Jesus was, and the man was healed instantly. And so let me quote this for you. I've got this on the slide. This left three treasured beliefs in tatters. Now, this is what the Word of Faith movement guys hold on to, right? Isn't it always God's will to heal? No, Jesus only healed one man out of the multitude. Doesn't God only heal people if they have enough faith? No, this crippled man didn't even know who Jesus was, let alone have faith in Him. Doesn't healing require an anointed healer, special music, and an offering collection? Now, this, this he was being cheeky because he knows that in many of these meetings, this is what they do. No, Jesus healed instantly with a mere command. I wept bitterly over my participation in greedy ministry manipulation and my life of false teaching and beliefs. And I thanked God for His mercy and grace through Jesus Christ. My eyes were completely opened. You can read this article and you can make your own conclusions. But you'll find that in the Word of Faith movement, which is the health and wealth gospel, which is prevalent also in our country, this is the promise, right? And there has to be the right music, there has to be the right atmosphere, right? We've got to wait for God to show up, and all these things. And I can tell you, I myself have gone through some of these things. And as excited as I was, as, as impressive it might have looked, along the way, I started to ask the same questions as Kosti Hin uh, would have been asking also. And it doesn't line up with Scripture. And I really, if you study Scripture, and if you do it expositorily, and I don't mean you pick Scriptures to, to back up what you want to say. You study Scripture for what it, it really is you'll find it doesn't hold water, many of these positions. And I'm saying again, I have not lost faith in God. God still heals. Amen? God st is still able to heal. He's able still to do exceedingly abundantly above all we can ask or imagine. You know, and that's not my point to tell you that you know, we should lose faith in a great God. No way. Not at all. Our God is able. But I believe as we grow and as we submit to Him, there's a much bigger picture I, I feel we have missed. Miracles are signs. And I'll be thrilled if I lay hands on someone, I pray for someone, or I don't even have to lay hands, I just speak the word and someone gets healed. I will be thrilled to bits. But I must remind myself, I mustn't make that the hallmark of my ministry. It must point to something else that is far greater. Amen? Miracles are signs. Jesus is our super sub. He's already won that game, okay? And it's the big game we're looking at. We are not looking at how great the goal was scored and we just keep replaying that wonderful goal, okay? We're looking at the big game, at the end of the whole thing. It's, it's a much, much, much bigger picture. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 8, Peter's mother-in-law. And so when Jesus touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and served 
in the New King James, it says, serve them. But in another translation, it says, serve him. It served Jesus. She arose and served Jesus. Now, we can read this and say, well, she could have just been a, a good hostess. Huh? Jesus was her, her guest. She was not well. She gets up immediately. Um, she fixes a meal or, you know, she brings Jesus a drink. It could imply nothing more than just that. But the verb is interesting because by the time of Matthew recording this, the verb diakoneo, diakoneo, would carry a tone of Christian service or ministry or of discipleship. And we know from that word we get diakonos, which means servant or a minister. And diakonia, which means service or ministry. So this is an interesting observation because Peter's mother-in-law arose and served Jesus, not merely as a hostess. Can we suggest that possibly she might have followed and become a servant of Jesus? And she was first ministered to by the Messiah, and she then became a minister of the Messiah. And this is the third point I want you to catch. Don't just see a miracle and say, wow, praise the Lord, you know, we're going to believe God for miracles. Yes, let's do that. We're going to pray for people after this. And don't just glory God and say, wow, you know, Jesus as our super sub, you know, we win. Yeah, praise the Lord, you know, death has been conquered and so on. You know, yeah, we're going to lift up that FA Cup. What's next? Jesus ministered to this woman and she arises and ministers to him and for him. And friends, this becomes a model of discipleship. That after Jesus serves us, we serve Him. And so ask yourself, has the Lord served you? Has He? Yes. Has He suffered vicariously for your sins? Yes, He has. Has He come in as a substitute on your behalf that you should have died, I should have died, but He has taken our place. He has served us. He has secured that, that mighty victory for us. What's our part now? We now serve Him. We have been ministered to serve. And that's why when Paul wrote to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, he was encouraging this young Christian, this young brother. He says, you don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of me being his prisoner. But share with me in the suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Verse 9, God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. He has saved us, and now He invites us. The word call just means invite. He has now invited us with a very special, a set-apart invitation, not according to our works, but according to His purpose, according to the grace that was given to us in Jesus Christ. Then He goes on, He says, because of that, I am now appointed as a preacher and an apostle. Are you getting the picture here? We are served by Jesus so that now we can serve Jesus. We have been saved by Him. By His stripes, we have been healed. For what purpose? Now we arise just like Peter's mother-in-law and serve Him. 
And many Christians need to hear this once more, you know. We can be awakened. If you're awake and you're still lying on a bed, nah, not going to help very much. Right? If you're awakened, you've got to arise. You've got to get out of bed. And too many Christians are still under the blanket and still lying down and still sleeping. Alive, but not arise. And Peter's mother-in-law arose and served. Dear Corneo, we have been saved that we might be called. It's more than just, just waiting to go to heaven. It's more than just the miracles and the breakthroughs in our life. If you've had a miracle, praise the Lord. If the Lord has given you a breakthrough, hallelujah, He has served you by His death. Amen? He has served you. He has ministered to you. What's your response? You are now ministered to serve Him and to serve His people. And Paul was reminding Timothy. Paul was reminding Archippus. Same thing. He tells Timothy, fulfill your ministry. He tells Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Very consistent. But understand this theology. Your theology has to be correct also. If you only camp at the miracles, if you're only looking for the miracles, friends, may God show you a big one to convince you. And after that, let's get off our butts. Right? We've been ministered to, to serve Him. Jesus is our super sub. Ole, ole, ole. Yeah? I look at the three miracles and I realize that this third one completes a picture that we have been painting. I didn't realize this. I, as I take the first step, I go through the second step and this is the third picture. When Jesus healed the leper, it was about cleanness and holiness. Remember the, the, the teaching? Right? It's clean and unclean. And as He has made us clean, now we have to stay clean. If anyone would cleanse himself, you will be a vessel for honour, sanctified and useful for the Master and prepared for good works. Amen? So it's not just about being healed. It's about being cleaned up and staying clean so that we can be a vessel for our Master's honour. The story of the centurion was not just about a long-range healing, remote control. As impressive as that was, we have already gone through the teaching. The story of the centurion was about great faith in the Messiah. Not just for healing. Because I suggested to you, and I believe that's true, great faith must result in great faithfulness. That the centurion would have switched alliance from the army of the Roman Empire to become an army of the Lord. So the story is about not just great faith, but great faithfulness. Again, serving the Lord wherever you are sent. And now the healing of Peter's mother-in-law is about discipleship, is about service, and about ministry. And it's so odd that Matthew would pick a woman to make this point. In other words, he's saying, look, if, if a woman in those days treated as if as nothing, I am going to use her as an example of discipleship, a second class, a nobody. Archippus, we got hope. Yeah. Amen? Archippus, we, we are nobodies. And check me out. Because after this story, Matthew inserts a discipleship footnote. And so when we come back, the next teaching is about discipleship. I mean, how consistent can this be? You know, right? the, the story just flows. And if we, if we follow what Scripture wants to tell us, I think we learn new things from the Word of God. And so, friends, as I conclude, 
Once again, the three points. Please take note. Number one, miracles are signs. Friends, keep praying for healing. Don't ever give up because our God is able. But once you understand the ministry of healing and where it sits that points to a much larger picture of spiritual healing, I think it holds us in good stead in the way we minister to people and to help them make sense of either healing that they have received, that they are believing for, or healing that they may still be waiting or have not received yet. The second is that Messiah as substitute. I think we can be very clear that total healing, total, has been secured by Jesus Christ. And one day, everything is going to be okay. We will all be healed. One day, there will be no more pain, there will be no more sickness. In the meantime, it's eschatological. We're always moving forward. And that's why it keeps us going. That's the hope that we have. Finally, we've been ministered to serve. We have been saved to serve. Never forget that. Don't leave this place forgetting it. Our keepers awakening is essentially about that, to remind us to, that we are to be awakened, that we must be aligned, that we can be assigned for our Lord and our Savior, our Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so Super Sub is an odd title, right? But now I hope you understand why I picked this title. It was a divine strategic move. Jesus was sent in as our substitute. And what a mighty victory that he has scored for all of us. But as I prepared this super sub message, I was reminded of our own Singaporean story of a super sub. For those of a certain age, you'll remember Malaysia Cup. In the heydays of Singapore football, Malaysia Cup, there was this guy who was sent in as a super sub in 1997, the Malaysia Cup finals. Before that, he was sent in for one game. He replaced Dola Kasim, Singapore football star. He gets pulled out. Nasir Jalil, this super sub, gets thrown in. And he goes in there and he scores and he secures a draw for Singapore, which was very, very critical at that point in time. And so he was nicknamed the super sub. He turned the thing around. In the finals in 1997, he came in as a substitute for S. Rajagopal, the banana kick specialist. And he helps the side defeat Penang 3-2 after extra time. This is the super sub. And why am I reminded of this guy? Because when he went in and he was nicknamed the super sub, he had another nickname. He was called the crazy horse. Now, our keepers, if you understand horse terminology, you will smile. For those who don't understand, read the book or get onto our website. He was called a crazy horse because he was just tireless. The way he ran, the moment he got the ball, he, was just, he just runs down the wing. And that was Nasir Jalil. Now, why, why this picture? Because those were the heydays of Singapore, Singapore football. But today, I don't know what has happened to Singapore football. And this question dropped into my heart. What about the body of Christ? Are there more spectators and bench warmers than there are those willing to fight and sweat it out on the pitch? Are there more who are willing just to look at the Lionel Messi to say, these are the superstars, they are going to win the game for us. You know, I know I can play, but I'm not called in. Could the Lord be signaling to the saints this moment and calling us now to warm up. Come on, get off the bench. You know, I, I'm going to send you in now. The time is right. It's an end time strategy or strategic plan. 
And he's like calling his substitutes now. We're not as super sub as, as Jesus is. But we shouldn't be bench warmers anymore. And I think the Lord is just giving us this picture to remind us. Would we do our part to, to go in there and take that game to a finish, what Jesus has started? He has changed the entire playing field already. And He has secured that victory for us. Would we take that lead? And will we do what we would be assigned to do? Let's pray. Lord, we just praise You. Lord Jesus, even as we go through this teaching, O oh Lord, thank You for suffering on our behalf. Thank You for dying in our place, O oh Lord. Thank You for taking everything upon You. And we thank You for the Word that has been recorded for us. And we thank You for Holy Spirit that will teach us to understand it. And where we have ministered wrongly and irresponsibly, and for some of us, maybe in our enthusiasm and wanting to encourage someone and motivate someone, we might have presented it perhaps overzealously. Lord, will you teach us henceforth? Will you help us so that we will allow what is the main idea, the main thing, to be the main thing? And I thank you still for miracles. I thank you still for your power, Lord. That even this evening after this, as we pray for people, even right now, if you have a need, whether listening in or seated right here, I speak the name of Jesus because of all He has done. And I proclaim that He is able to heal. He's more than able to do that. And so in the name of Jesus, will you hold on to the power of God? Will you ask Him and will you petition Him? There's nothing wrong with doing that. But Lord, even as we say that, Lord, we say, Lord, you are king, you are Lord. And we submit to you. We honor you. We ask reverently, Lord. And we thank you, Lord. But Lord, may we not miss the last point. As you minister to us, even not physically in the things that we are asking for right now, you have already secured salvation for all of us. You have died for all of us. We have been saved that we might serve. So will you help us to understand that? Will you enable us, empower us by your Holy Spirit so that we will accept your invitation and do all that you task us to? And we thank you, Lord, as we dismiss and as we close this time. Receive all glory, all praise, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.